The following podcast is a glimpse into the life of Ecclesia Houston. We pray it is a blessing as you seek to follow Jesus, the liberating King, and live in his kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. One of the uh, fairly unique things about my life is that because of some opportunities that the Lord has given me to kind of travel and, and speak to different people that I go to places and I speak to different groups about all sorts of things. And most of the time, I kind of know the people. I kind of have an idea of what to expect and who's going to be there. There's some kind of connection point, but sometimes there's just not. And so I have these really weird experiences like being trapped in a hotel that caught on fire and things like that. But I have this very clear memory of being asked to come and be a part of a speaker series at a college about five years ago. And colleges are always weird anyway to go and speak to college students. But about a week before this event, the event coordinator calls me. And he's giving me all the details about what's going to happen on the day and where I need to go and what I need to do. And he says to me, and I just want you to know you really need to be on your A game because the speaker before you is Daryl Strawberry. (laughs) Now, for those of you who don't follow baseball, this is Daryl Strawberry. Daryl Strawberry played the major leagues for 17 years. He was an all-star eight years in a row. And he was a part of four World Series teams. But before he got to the major leagues, he had an incredibly difficult life. He was raised in South Central LA by an alcoholic and abusive father. And his father would come home oftentimes and beat him and his mom and his brother. And one night his father came home drunk and started beating his mom and he and his brother were just done with it. They were over it. So they beat back their dad off of their mother and he runs to the bedroom and comes out with a shotgun. And Daryl and his brother run and get a baseball bat and a frying pan. And their mom calls the police. And the police come. And the police tell him to never come back there again. And he doesn't. But when Daryl Strawberry makes it big, like none of that goes away. And he has a very tumultuous career. It begins with alcohol and amphetamines and finally cocaine. He gets traded to the Dodgers where his wife takes him to a Christian convention and he has a Jesus moment and gives his life to God. But by that time in his life, everything had devolved so badly that he had fallen out of the major leagues. He was playing independent baseball and got a call from the Yankees who said, why don't you come back and play with us? And he'd gone to rehab and gotten his life back together and things were going really well. But almost as soon as he makes it back to New York after he wins a couple of World Series, he has colon cancer. And the doctors are surprised that he even made it that far. There's so much cancer, it had spread so far that they were surprised that his colon hadn't burst. Six months later though, after all of the surgery, Daryl Strawberry is back on the field. But all of the treatment and all of the pain, he had begun to abuse and use drugs again until finally couldn't take it anymore and went back into rehab. He met a woman named Tracy who became his second wife. And he has a conversion experience again. And at the end of that experience, this is what Daryl Strawberry says. He says, I just had to surrender. I had to get 
with God myself. I had to separate myself from everything and everybody. God was calling me and it was either I was going to answer this call or I was going to die. And this was the guy who was gonna speak before me. <laughs> like what am I supposed to say at that point? Sean Palmer won the Fishers of Men Award at third grade vacation Bible school. <laughs> it just didn't really add up. But I totally get it, right? Like why people love that story? Because there's this part of us that kind of wants a dramatic story and there's a part of us that responds to dramatic stories. Because deep down in us, there's this belief Man, that my faith, my experience with God would be so much more, so more dramatic if I saw or experienced something dynamic. Because we live in this world where we really believe, or at least we tell ourselves that we believe, that seeing is believing. And that if we could just see God do something, then that would make a difference in what we thought and what we felt what we believed. And when you're flipping through the book of John, there is this incredible event in the life of Jesus that is all about seeing and of the way we see and the way we see the world. And it's this beautiful invitation of Jesus to invite us into a different kind of seeing. And it starts in John 9. John 9 starts this way. While walking along the road, Jesus saw a man who was blind since birth. The disciples say, teacher, who sinned? Who is responsible for this man's blindness? Did he commit sins that merited this punishment? If not his sins, is it the sins of his parents? Okay, so for those of you who have been around the scriptures for a while, if you've read this story before, you might know that in antiquity, in the ancient world, that if someone was born with a birth defect, if there was something really um, pervasive and wrong with someone, the belief was that they sinned, and I don't know how you would do that if you were born blind, like maybe something you did in utero, you sinned in utero, or your parents sinned. And that actually kind of makes sense if you remember passages like Deuteronomy 5, where God says to people, you know, the sins of the father will be visited on the children and their children to the fifth or the eighth generation. And that always sounds really terrible and mean, but the truth is, because some of you have this in your story, that some of you have had a father or a grandfather or a mother or a grandmother who did something way back when, and then you paid the price for it, like you're still paying the price for it because of someone else. like, that's not a, that's not a curse, that's just life. But they had come to believe that if something was wrong with someone, then they had to do something wrong. And when they saw someone, something wrong with someone, they weren't concerned about what was wrong. They were concerned about who to blame. 
that if something is wrong in the world, then there's somebody who must be at fault. And now we sit here in the 21st century and we think that we are so much smarter and so much more sophisticated, but how many times have you looked in the face of someone either that you knew or someone on television, someone you saw somewhere, they were experiencing something absolutely horrible and you blame their parents. Well, their parents shouldn't have brought them here. So which is it, Jesus? Jesus says, neither. And just then, we begin to get the sense that Jesus might have a different way of seeing the world than we do. That all the things that were handed down to us, things that we have come to think, things we thought, or things that we have been taught, might not be the way it is. And this is hard because you've made it this far thinking the way you think. Then Jesus says this, his blindness cannot be explained or traced to any particular person's sin. He is blind so the deeds of God may be put on display. Now, for most of my life, I have hated this verse. Because when you go home and read this later, because I know you all do that on Sunday afternoon, (laughs) your translation will say something like this, this was done so that God's glory could be revealed. And I always wonder what kind of God needs people to suffer so that his glory could be revealed. And that's because Jesus wants to rearrange the way that I see the world. Because what you know and I know is that a lot of times it's in the crucible of pain, it's on the platform of pain that God is revealed. We don't like pain. We don't choose pain. But how many times have you seen someone, been witness to someone, and it is through their pain or through your own pain that you actually discovered God? So one of my best friends in the world, we were college roommates, 18 years ago, his first daughter was born, and she was born with what we kind of colloquially call dwarfism. And she's about to go off to college next fall, and he would tell you if he were here that she has been excluded and mocked by people who didn't understand and people who were cold, and he would also tell you that it is through her life that he has seen God revealed. We don't believe because of the way that we see that pain is a good thing, that pain can have a purpose. But Jesus' pain had a purpose. John goes on, Jesus says, while it is daytime, we must do the works of the one who sent me. But when the sun sets and night falls, this work is impossible. Whenever I am in the world, I am the light of the world. After he said these things, he spat on the ground, mixed saliva and dirt to form mud, which he smeared across the blind man's eyes because Jesus really believes in being sterile. He says, go, wash yourself in the pool of Siloam. So Jesus makes this little concoction on the ground, and there is absolutely no reason for Jesus to do any of this. 
Like Jesus could have spoke a word. He could have put his hand on his head like he was Benny Hinn or somebody. He could have touched his eyes. And then the man is given instructions. Go wash yourself in the pool, this pool that was used for ritual cleansing. And he does the only thing that the scriptures ever really ask us to do. He leaves Jesus and walks by faith and not by sight. He doesn't know Jesus. He's never met Jesus. He's never heard Jesus teach. He's heard stories about Jesus and he's willing to trust Jesus in this one thing. When people ask me, like, how do I take my faith to the next level? How do I go deeper? You pick something that Jesus said to do and do that one thing. And see how it turns out. John goes on, it says, Siloam means sent. And its name reminded us that his healing was sent by God. The man went, washed, and returned to Jesus, his eyes now alive with sight. Then neighbors and others who knew him were confused to see a man so closely resembling the blind beggar running about. Because he can see, and this guy we know, he's blind. So it must not be him, it must be someone who just resembles him. The townspeople say, isn't this the man we see every day sitting and begging in the streets? Others said, this is the same man. And still others, this cannot be him, but this fellow bears an uncanny resemblance to the blind man. The blind man says, I am the same man, it's me. How have your lifeless eyes been opened, they asked. What's going on? Because something has happened that I don't, the townspeople don't, I don't have a category for. So it can't be what you say it is because it doesn't fit the narrative I already believe. Blind man says, a man named Jesus approached me and made mud from the ground and applied it to my eyes. He then said to me, go wash yourself in the pool of Siloam. I went and washed and suddenly I could see. Where is the man who healed you? The blind man says, I don't know. I didn't see him. <laughs> no clue what he looks like. I might be able to hear, understand his voice. I might be able to recognize it. I don't no. And this is where the story gets fun. Because the man doesn't know what's happened. The townspeople doesn't know what's happened. And so it's time for the next level of people. Because in the ancient world, when you were welcomed back into the community, if you'd been healed and you were coming back into the community, you had to go check out with the priest. They had to give you uh, their 
signature. It's kind of like getting your passport stamped. And this is what John says happens next. It says, the townspeople brought the formerly blind beggar to appear before the Pharisees the same day Jesus healed him, which happened to be on the Sabbath. There Jesus goes again, doing things on the Sabbath. And this doesn't fit the Pharisees' rules. This is how they respond. The Pharisees began questioning him, looking for some explanation for how he could see. The man says, he smeared mud on my eyes. I washed, now I see. God can't possibly be behind this man because he is breaking the rules of the Sabbath. Now, this is crazy and fascinating because Jesus doesn't actually break any rules of the Sabbath. He breaks their version of the rules of the Sabbath. And I would bet that if you are like most people, over the course of your life, you have determined what's right, what's wrong, what's good, what's bad, and you've told yourself We have all told ourselves that our belief, the way we see the world, is actually from God, and it might not be. That I don't know anybody who doesn't have their own set of rules that they think God gave them about how people ought to talk or dress or think, who people can support and who they can't support what people ought to do with their money, what kind of house people should live in, what kind of education people should have. All of us, somewhere along the line, have come to see the world in a way where we're actually God, but to give it power, we say that what we see is from God. And not only that, Not only do we get all ruffled about the acts of God, we get ruffled about who God acts through. The Pharisees say, this can't be from God because it happened on the Sabbath. And if something happens outside of your construct, outside of the narrative in which you live, that can't possibly be a good thing. That can't possibly be a God thing. What happens when God chooses to bless the people that we have chosen to blame? What John goes on, the other Pharisees say, how can such a law-breaking scoundrel do something like this? 
because the power's in the law, not in God for them. The Pharisees were at odds with one another about Jesus and could not agree whether his power came from God or the devil. And this, I think, is a temptation for all of us. When you become, when we become more concerned with our side, our way of seeing, our party, our politics, our way of constructing the world, when we become more concerned with our benefit, everyone else has to be evil. They have to be. Because if I'm right and you're wrong and you continue to be wrong, you must choose to be wrong, which is evil. And what's happened to the Pharisees and what happens to so many of us is that we exist in a world, we construct a world that is built around our preconceived ideas, our assumptions about who God is and how God acts in the world and what's right and what's wrong and what God ought to do and what God not ought to do. And anything that's outside of that, anything that pushes back against that, well, that has to be from the devil. Because it can't be you. You're a good person. You can't be wrong. You can't have ignored some information. You can't be biased. It can't be me, so it has to be you. Because this is what I've always thought, or this is what I was taught. And Pharisees have some questions. They say, what do you say about this man, about the fact he opened your eyes so you could see? Blind man says, I have no doubt this man is a prophet. Some of the Jews suspected the whole situation was a charade, that this man was never blind. So they summoned the man's parents to testify about his condition. Okay, well, we don't trust you, so let's get mom and dad in here. So we're going to have mom and dad testify that you were blind. So this is what happens when they ask mom and dad about it. Mom and dad come in, the Pharisees say, is this man your son? It's like, yeah, why are you bothering us on the Sabbath? We were home watching the football game. (laughs) Do you testify that he has been blind from birth? How therefore does he now see? Parents say, we can tell you this much, he is our son and he was born blind, but his new sight is a complete mystery to us. We do not know this man who opened his eyes. Why don't you ask our son? He is old enough to speak for himself. He's a grown man. The man's parents were a bit evasive because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders. It had been rumored that anyone who spoke of Jesus as the anointed one would be expelled from the synagogue. And this is one of my favorite verses in this passage. Because there's actually a better translation that says, 
Not that it was rumored that they would be expelled from the synagogue, but the Jewish leaders had already decided. You ever come across people who've already decided? When I was in high school, I was in um, honors English, what they would call language arts these days. But I have an older brother, he's three years older than me, and uh, he was not in honors English or general level English, but he was in this English class with kids who barely spoke English. And we had the same teacher. And so in ninth grade, he had a teacher for remedial English. And when I got to ninth grade, I had the same teacher for honors English. And I'll never forget after our first test, which was over Hamlet, which I got 122. (laughs) She stopped me on my way out of class and she goes, you're, you're Richard Palmer's brother? Yeah. Did you, you, you read Hamlet? You read Hamlet? Yeah. She goes, okay. She had already decided. Some of you work with people and you see the way they maneuver around other people and oh, we can't ask her to do this or him to do that. We're not gonna let them advance. We're not gonna let them do this because you know what? I've already decided. Some of you look at your children and you say, well, you're gonna do this and I'm gonna do this and you're not gonna do this because you know what? We've already decided. Somewhere along the line, it's so easy to come to a way of seeing the world because you're so busy and there's so many other things that you don't have time, you don't have interest in looking at anything, examining anything, investigating anything, and so you will just stay with what you've already known, what you've already seen, and you've already decided. Here's how you know you've already decided. You hate meetings. You hate input. You've already decided. And in this crazy story where Jesus heals a blind man and he he encounters townspeople and Pharisees who can't believe it because either it doesn't fit in their construct of the world or it doesn't fit in their beliefs about God or because they've already decided that they have been the whole time the ones who were really blind. And the best way to be blind is to ignore what is available to be seen. My father had a saying that there were none so blind as those who would not see. John goes on and says, so They deferred the thorny question to their son and the Pharisees called on him a second time. 
give credit to God, which they mean by meaning that, by saying that, what they mean is not to Jesus, but to God. He's the one who healed you. All glory belongs to God. We are persuaded this man you speak of is a sinner who defies God. If this man is a sinner, the blind man says, I don't know. And this is where the rubber meets the road for most of us. Because this man doesn't know Jesus. Doesn't know anything about Jesus. He says, if he's a sinner, I don't know. And for many of us, this is the place where we live because we think that our faith would be bigger and stronger, would be deeper if God did something dynamic and dramatic. Or maybe if we knew everything that there was to know about Jesus. But this guy, he shows us you don't have to know everything to know something. To know that God is real and active and moving, to know that God is trustworthy, you don't have to know everything to know something. And the truth is that there is no arena of your life where you know everything. Nobody knows everything. And if you don't believe me, try this. Find somebody who is an expert in their field and ask them a complex question about that field and you know what they will say? I don't know. Only idiots and amateurs know everything. And my wife finds this very frustrating after spending $100,000 on my theological education when she asks me questions and I say, I don't know. <laughs> but you don't have to know everything to know something. Listen to what he says. He says, I'm not qualified to say. I only know one thing. I was blind. And now I see. And that's the story of so many of us. And for some of us, we're very much like Daryl Strawberry. And it was this big, dynamic, dramatic event. And for others, it was gradual and over time. But the story we all share is that we were blind, but now we see. And if you want to be the kind of person who continues to see the world as God sees it, the only way to do that is to open yourselves up for the next move of God and decide that you have not already decided. So as Richard Rohr says, the best defense against the next move of God is the previous move of God. 
And it's so easy to get locked into our own expectations of what the world is like and what God's going to do and what our lives are like and who the people around us are and what they're capable of and what they're not capable of that we can easily live the rest of our lives not seeing. And so the invitation for all of us is to look at the lives God gives us and ask the Lord to show us the things and the people and the ideas and the places that we have chosen to not see. Because you can be really religious and still be really blind. No one believes in this story that Jesus would do something they didn't expect God to do. And they're all wrong. And so for the next move of your life, where is it where the way you see God could be opened and matured and deepened if you just allowed your eyes to see. Ecclesia, let me pray for you. God, help us see what we have chosen not to see. To be people of full heart and full trust that you are doing something beautiful and powerful in the world. And all we need to do is open our hearts and open our eyes to it. Give us a vision beyond what we have thought and what we have been taught to embrace who you are and what you're doing. And we ask this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information, please visit our website at www.ecclesiahouston.org.